Well, hello, it's Pastor Carson from Calvary Tabernacle. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. We hope that it's a blessing to you, whether you're catching one of the Sunday or Wednesday messages, or maybe you're jumping on to listen to one of the Saturday snapshots. We're doing everything we can right here in the beautiful Fountain Square area of Indianapolis to try to reach and connect and disciple people towards Jesus Christ. Enjoy what you listen to, and I hope that it's a benefit to your life. I'm going to take your attention tonight to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read just a few verses here. It says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. In verse four, it says, and they said, go to, Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. If you can put down your Bibles and lift your hands with me. Lord, we love you tonight, Jesus. God, we're asking you to move through the preaching of the word. God, that you would give me the words to speak, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive. God, you do the work. You do the work, and we need you to move tonight. Whatever you desire to do, in Jesus' name, you can be seated. It was the early 1900s, and the pursuit of powered man flight was like the dot-com of the day. Everybody, everywhere was trying it. And Samuel Pierpont Langley had what we assumed to be the recipe for success. Even now, when you ask somebody, why did your product or why did your company fail? People will always give you a variation of the same three things, undercapitalized, the wrong people, or bad market conditions. Always the same three. But for Samuel Langley, this was not the case. The War Department gave Mr. Langley $50,000, a million dollars in today's money, so that he could figure out this flying machine. Money for him was no problem. He held a seat at Harvard and worked at the Smithsonian and was extremely well-connected. He knew all the great minds of the day, so he hired the best and the brightest money could find, and the market conditions were fantastic. The New York Times followed him everywhere, and everyone was rooting for Langley. 
then how come we've never heard of Samuel Pierpont Langley? You know, just a few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, were the brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright. They had none of what we considered to be the recipe for success. They had no money. They paid for their dream with the proceeds from their bicycle shop. Not a single person on their team had a college education, not even Orville or Wilbur. And the New York Times followed them around nowhere. The difference was that Orville and Wilbur were driven by a cause or a purpose, a belief, they said. They believed that if they could figure out this flying machine, it could change the course of the world. Samuel Pierpont Langley was altogether different. All he cared about was being rich and being famous. The people who believed in the Wright brothers' dream, they worked with them with blood, sweat, and tears. The others just worked for a paycheck. And they would tell the stories of how every time the Wright brothers went out, they would have to take five sets of parts because that's how many times they would crash before they came in for supper. And eventually, on December 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers took flight and no one was there to experience it. The rest of the world found out a few days later. The day that the Wright brothers took flight, Samuel Langley gave up. He wasn't first. He didn't get rich and he didn't get famous. So he quit. Now, there are a lot of stories we can reference throughout all of history of people who are driven with engineering minds and great ingenuity. They're able to imagine and create something spectacular. And, and no doubt they've invented a lot of great inventions. But my mind, when I think of the best story, I come back to the Wright brothers. Now, I got to admit that I am someone that's right there fighting and rooting for the underdog. So there's something about it when these brothers said that we're going to take parts Enough parts that we can crash five times because we're not going to give up. We don't have the money. We don't have the backing of the government. The New York Times is not following us around. But we do believe that if we can achieve this task, then we can make the world a better place. And it is with that attitude, it is with that spirit that I would liken those brothers to the church today. Because we do have. Something that can change and transform the world as we know it. And it may appear that the odds are against us. It may seem like we don't have the financial backing or the support of this world. But just like the Wright brothers said, we will continue on because we believe in something greater. We're not worried about getting rich. We're not worried about our names and lights. We're not worried about being famous. We want to see God transform the lives present on this earth. They had something going on. They had something brewing within them 
that drove them day in and day out. And I want to, as an apostolic, as a man of God, baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, I'm asking myself, can I get up with that same unction every single day, no matter how bad the day was before, no matter how many times I crashed before, no matter how many things didn't go my way, can I wake up another day and build one more time. Because what we're building, what we're working towards is so much greater than can be found at the hands of men. They cannot accomplish that. They cannot reach that. Not by making contraptions. Surely there was great benefit that was brought to all of humankind based upon the invention of the airplane. People have great benefits from that. I can hop on a plane today and within two hours be on the tarmac in Sarasota, Florida. You pick your destination. That's where my in-laws live. They're watching. And when they hear I was just excited about being able to get to them in two hours, I just earned some points. But all of the modern conveniences that we benefit from the invention of the airplane, they pale in comparison to what can be done if we build the kingdom of God here on earth. It's two-hour flight, and I'm thankful for that. But it's just one moment when someone makes up in their mind, I no longer want to be bound by sin. I want to be set free. I no longer want to be bound by addiction. I want to be delivered. I no longer want to be given over to this world. I want to serve God. Just one moment. That's the kingdom we're building. That's what we're working on. That's why we get up day after day and do it all over again so that somebody's life can be changed, not just for this time on earth, but for all of eternity. I look at what took place in Genesis chapter 11. You know, for a story that had such a remarkable impact on our history as humankind. It's hard to believe it's wrapped up in nine verses. In just nine verses. And if we read it just in this small context of verse one through verse four, I could understand how we would begin to wonder, what's the big deal? What's the problem with them building a city or building a tower? You know, what they were building was really not the problem. That's not what really rubbed God so much. All throughout scripture, you'll find cities being built. All throughout scriptures, you'll find houses and homes and things that may be able to be considered towers being built. God was not upset about that. He was not mad that the unity of the brethren was working together to accomplish something. It's what they were working to build that made God so upset. Let's take a look about, oh, a hundred years prior to this event. Because when we read about the Tower of Babel, it's easy for us to think, okay, the flood happened. The Tower of Babel must have been like 7,000 years later. No. 
No, now I will admit the theologians can't land 100%, but I can tell you that most would agree that from the flood to the Tower of Babel was right about 100 years. 100 years. What does that mean? That means the folks that were on the boat were alive when the Tower of Babel was being constructed. So here, hear me, think about this. There's no doubt that those that were on that boat had told stories to those that were born after them when they got off the boat. There's no question the passion behind telling the tragic story of what it was like when the rain began to fall. Telling their grandkids, we talked to everybody we could. We invited everyone that we met. We told them that the flood was coming and the only safe place they could go was on the ark. But they didn't listen. They thought it was just a joke. They, they laughed at us. They mocked us. They didn't think that it was such a big deal until the rain began to fall. And when God shut that door, all we could hear was raindrops hitting and the cry of the voices of those who were outside of the ark. What kind of nightmares does someone have that had to endure the pain and the agony of listening to the voices of those that did not board the ark? And they would have told the stories to their grandkids and to their great-grandkids. They would have told them that once they were on the boat, the rain was falling and it, it just seemed like we were on there forever. Like the days went by so slowly and we just rocked. We did the best we could to care for the animals that were aboard. That's what God wanted us to do. And then one day, finally, unexpectedly, we almost forgot to even talk about it that day because we were so used to thinking because today the day and then it turns out that it's not. But on that day, the boat rested. And the waters were completely gone. And the door was open. And we stepped out onto dry land. Now you have to imagine. Like in a moment of time when there should be nothing but thankfulness. They did. They stepped off. They built an altar. They worshiped God. God gave them very strict instructions to go and to multiply, to be fruitful, to replenish or fill the earth. All of that took place. But how do you get past that and seemingly forget? Now, I'm not saying you got to hear me. I'm not saying I just I have a hard time getting my mind around Noah building the Tower of Babel. I just, I just don't think it happened. I got no proof for it. I just kind of like the guy. And if he was there, I would dislike the guy. And so for the sake of just keeping a good relationship between me and Noah, we're going to say Noah wasn't present. Maybe he objected what was going on. He wasn't excited about it. He knew that they had something they were supposed to do. But what about his great grandson? Because that's who we're talking about, Nimrod, who was driving this building project, 
who was getting everybody else on board and excited about landing there in the plains of Shinar and building a city and building a tower. And it wasn't what they were building that was so significant. It's why they were doing it. They were building the city and this tower, the Bible says, so that they could make a name for themselves. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be known by everyone else. And somehow they had forgotten they were already known by the only one that mattered. But they wanted their name to be spread amongst the people. They wanted people to look to them. And they wanted to prevent themselves from being scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. In other words, they wanted to stop from being and doing what God had called them to be and sent them to do. They were doing their very best to prevent that from taking place. We read on and we see how God responds to that. He says, the Lord came down to see the tower and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. So go, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city. They stopped it. They could no longer build it. God put an end to it because he's seen that they were building a kingdom for themselves instead of building the kingdom of God. He was not upset about the unity. In fact, he is counting on us being a unified body with him being the head. But he also is counting on us not just hearing, but walking in obedience and doing that which he is calling us to do. Because there is a kingdom that needs to be built. But if we're not careful, we can find ourselves building it for us. It won't matter if we're unified, if we're unified to build something that's not approved by God. It won't matter if we're working together, if we're gathering in here to worship, if we ever stop worshiping the one true God. It won't matter how much money we give, how much time and energy we spend, if we're not building his kingdom. It's his kingdom that must go on. It's his kingdom that needs continuing to be built. They said, let us build us a city. Let us build us a tower. I've been in those situations. These guys are deliberately going against what God wanted them to do. But here's what can happen. Sometimes we can innocently drift off course. Not intentionally, not blatantly in God's face, but it's like this. I can be in the hallway of my house. Right down here is my son's room. This way is our living room. I can be in a moment where I stand in the hallway. Everything's good. And I look 
into the living room and my son is playing with Legos. And all of a sudden, I'm infuriated. You're laughing because you're like, what's wrong with Legos? Right? That's the question. I'm mad. This could be a true story. And so I stop what I'm doing and I walk over to my son and I say, son, what are you doing? And he looks up innocently. Not a thought in the world of him doing something he shouldn't be doing. And he says, I'm building Legos. I grit my teeth. And I say to him, aren't you supposed to be cleaning your room? You did ask me to clean my room. So the problem with that wasn't him playing with Legos. The problem was I asked him to do something else. And somehow he got confused and caught up in what he wanted to do that he found himself doing something that's seemingly innocent. It may not take you to hell, but it may not help someone to heaven either. It doesn't have to be something that drags you down into the pits of despair as long as it stops you from getting done what God has called you to do. When God builds the house, then we can count on it. Then we know it's tried and true. Then we know it's trusted. But if we find ourselves building something that God didn't ask us to build, no matter how innocent it may look, no matter how much fun it can be, if it's not the house the Lord is building, then those that build it, me and you, we build it in vain. I'm just going to be the one to tell you, I don't got enough time for that. I don't want to waste my time building things that have no value. I don't want to waste my time building kingdoms for myself. I want to take the little bit of time that I've got here on earth, and I want to make the biggest splash for the kingdom that I can. I want to see people healed. I want to see people transformed. I want to see drug addicts delivered. I want to see marriages restored. I want the kingdom of God to be built. We have our individual burdens to carry. We have this personal walk with God. It's how the relationship begins. It's you and it's him. He draws us in. We respond to the draw. And if we allow him, he purchases us with his blood. And then we become possessions of the king. But once we become possessions of the king, it's no longer only about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's also about our relationship with the rest of the body. 
If we can learn anything from these folks in Genesis, then we can learn that if we will unify behind something, if we will support one another and get on board with what God is doing, then there is nothing that can be withheld from us. If we will work together. And can I tell you the truth? It's really not about if we will, because we don't have a choice. If you got in to a walk with God, and you only want to do it by yourself, you made the wrong choice. There's no doing life just you and God. It's always going to include the body of Christ. You're always going to be yoked up with fellow believers working together to build the kingdom of God. You can't do it on your own. It's not possible to do it on your own. We need each other to work together so that we can lift bricks that individually we can't lift. They were building a tower, they said, and God was displeased with it. But their tower was one that they were erecting for man to see so that their name could be known, so that they could be lifted up and exalted among men. But when we work together as the body of Christ, we're building with spiritual bricks, not literal bricks. And I'm telling you now, there are times where one, two, three, ten of us can't lift it on our own. We get down there to try and you will wear yourself out. You'll grab a hold of the corner. You'll get on your shoulder. You'll try to nudge that thing. You'll get on your back feet and you'll try to shove it like that. And if you're five foot seven, even if it works, it doesn't get very far. But you will eventually exhaust yourself. And here's what happens. You don't just hurt yourself. You get so frustrated and so mad at God because you did everything you could to accomplish his will and it didn't work. But you really didn't do everything you could because you worked alone when you should have been working in unity. Together is how you get that accomplished. You know, the Lord has a way. He has a way for us as believers, for our walk with him, for the work he's doing on earth to be sustainable. He's mapped this thing out and he's got it dialed in perfectly. And I don't know what your political stance is when it comes to unions, but they have the best model, the most closely mimics exactly what the church is to be doing. They have what they call a skilled trades program. We got any skilled tradesmen in here? One? Hey, thank God we're contracting the remodel out. Okay. Well, Brother Losh, you will understand what I'm saying then. The program starts with apprentice. An apprentice is somebody that doesn't have any real understanding about the trade, but they know enough about it that they want to try it. They've seen tradesmen. They've talked to tradesmen and they've seen the buildings and the projects that have been completed by those tradesmen. And that got their attention so that they said, hey, I want to be in the apprentice program. I want to learn 
how to do what you guys are doing. And can I tell you, if we're doing this thing right, if we're doing this thing right, then everywhere we go, we're getting the attention of people. Not because we're great, but because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, and everywhere we go, He goes with us. People see it. People notice it. People understand it. They ask questions like, why do you give like that? Why do you give your time like that? Why do you help people when there's nothing in it for you? They ask those questions, and they see in our lives, and they say, you know what? You've got my attention. I see what happens when you guys do what you do, and I'm curious about it. And so the apprentice joins the program. He's there for two, three, five years, depending on the trade. And while he's on the job, or she's on the job, forgive me, while he or she is on the job, they are learning the trade and they are getting paid. As they progress through their apprenticeship and move on to the next two levels, they learn more and they continue to get pay increases. The benefits of them being there longer, learning more and getting involved in their trade continue on scale depending on how deep they're getting involved. Can I tell you, when someone comes into the body of Christ and they come into this church and they get just a taste of one service and they think, man, that's incredible. I just felt something like I've never felt before. If they stick around, it will get even better. The further they walk with Christ, the more committed that they are to him, the better that it gets. If you thought it felt good to stand down here, cry some tears and repent, wait until you get into the waters of baptism. Wait until your sins have been washed away and you are a clean, brand new creature. The apprenticeship. Once they graduate from the apprenticeship, they become a journeyman. A journeyman is someone that has a much greater understanding based on their experience and time in the trade. They've been certified and went through many things to prove to the people around them and to their superiors that they have a greater understanding about what they're doing than they did when they were apprentice. You stick around the journeyman long enough and you eventually become what they call a master craftsman. Now, a master craftsman is not only the person that is receiving the most benefits and the highest pay in that trades craft, but they're also the most trained and most experienced person on the job. But what I love most about that is when you get to the master craftsman's level, it is absolutely expected of you that you are training somebody beneath you. It is expected if you're going to be a master craftsman and you're going to boast of your experience and you're going to boast of your time on the job and your qualifications to be in that position and you're going to gladly take the pay increase, then it's expected of you that you are training journeymen and spending time with apprentice. If you're not spending time with journeymen and apprentice, then don't call yourself a master craftsman. And if you're not spending time training a journeyman, then you won't get the pay of a master craftsman, and nor will you get the notoriety of a master craftsman. It only comes when you're doing the work of a master craftsman. If we're going to build the kingdom of God together, 
if we're going to do it to God's glory, if we're going to work in full unity, it's going to take us acknowledging the fact that all in this room, for the rest of the time that we're laboring together, we're all going to be in different places of our journey, but every one of us have a place in the body. Okay? I'm saying that when you're new to church and you don't have to raise your hand, if you're three to five years into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you need to understand that the expectation that God has upon you is that you just continue to grow, that you continue to walk as the spirit of God leads you, that you don't get off course, that you don't get fed up because the master gets more money you because the journeyman understands more than you. You've got to be committed to it yourself. The apprenticeship really requires a lot of self-committal to make it work because there's nobody begging you to come in. You don't have any skills. There's not a whole lot you're going to bring to the job that's a benefit. And I know what that's like. I was new in Christ once. I knew what it was like to pick up my Bible and hear somebody else saying, turn to here. And I'm like, nope. They've read the verse, gave their introduction, and I still haven't found it. I know what that's like. And let me tell you, as the church grows, we will continue to have more and more people in this room that are in that same position. Now, you can't force them to come. That's on them. But what you can do is journeymen and master craftsmen, if you're the mature one, if you're the one that's been here 20 years or 30 years or 15 years, then God is expecting of you like he's expecting of them to come. He's expecting of you to pour into them. He's expecting of us to pick them up when they fall. Look what the scripture says. Romans 15 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Don't be offended if you're at the apprentice level. Christ is just saying he acknowledges the fact that you're not as far along as people that have been here for a lot longer. And that's okay because the burden doesn't become yours for a new person or apprentice. The burden becomes mine. The burden becomes the saint that's been here for 10 or 15 years. It becomes my burden at this point to make sure that I'm developing those that are coming behind me. If we're going to have a church tomorrow, 50 years from now, or 100 years from now, it's going to be because we're continuing to trade those and train them that are coming up behind us. That's how. Christ said, we build a church. It's going to take us working together. It's going to take us reaching into the lives of others. I don't want to pound this too hard, but I want to say it one more time because I don't want you leaving this room thinking that you misunderstood what I'm saying. If you are mature in Christ, if you have been at this church and serving God for any great length of time, then the expectation, not from me, but from God, is that you find people 
and you pour into people. You help mold and shape those that are coming into the church after you. And if you're not doing that, if you're not doing that, then scratch mature off of the title you have given yourself. You may have long tenor, but you're not mature and you're not skilled in the craft. If you are truly a master craftsman, then you know it is my duty. Better than my duty, it is my honor that I will serve those that are coming up behind me. Are they going to ask dumb questions? Maybe. Are they going to make dumb mistakes? Absolutely. But they need someone to be there for them like somebody was there for us. It's the only biblical sustainable model on the planet. Stand with me, please. I want to take your attention in closing to Genesis 11 and verse 6. Genesis 11 and verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. If you could throw up that image I have. The ziggurat, please. I read, have read, I'm going to admit this to you guys. My goodness, this is embarrassing. I have read this story and I have imagined with my wild imaginations this tower that is being erected, this slim, thin, almost like skyscraper tower being erected great into the miles into the sky and they're getting close to to accomplishing what they're wanting to do and then God says no I need to stop them I need to stop them from that but the reality is they were not building a tower that was like a skyscraper it was not planned to make it into outer space or anything like that They were building probably what became very common in Babylon. It's the ziggurat. Now, this one is some ruins, so you're not seeing the complete picture of it. It could be 7, 10, 11 stories high. But the point I'm making is that it's one that is built to where the sides go up, they come in, and it just continues up almost like a pyramid until you get to the top. You can't see it real clear. In this picture, but on the very top, before it was destroyed, there would have been this temple. And the temple was built there because that's where the gods could meet and hang out. And so when the ancestors of Noah began to build this, they were not just saying, we're not interested in doing what you asked us to do. 
They were also saying, we're going to build something that opens us up to hear from other gods. We're not submitting ourselves to the plans you have. We're no longer following you. We've heard of what you've done for our ancestors, and we know that we would not be here had you not protected them during that flood. But we are making some decisions now that are going to be different for us. And one language they call this the gate of gods. Because it's that place where they sit down on the lower levels and they just imagine themselves down there feasting and, and going day to day throughout their operations while the gods are meeting up on top in the temple. And should the gods ever decide that they want to come down and mingle with the men, then they could step off and they could take one of many step ways down to where the people were at. They had understanding. They knew who the great God was. They heard of his great redemptive power when he saved them from building that ark. They knew all of those things and somehow they got to a place where they said, that's not what we want. Apparently when God said, be fruitful, replenish the earth, go forth and multiply, it was too much for them to do. They wanted to stay together. And they wanted to build a temple and a city where they could commune with these unknown, made-up gods. I read this and it says that because they're all in one mind, because they're all working together, that they can do anything that they imagine to do. We know they couldn't build a tower to make themselves equal with God. That's impossible. There is no equal to God. But what they could do and what this verse is saying, that if I let them continue, that they can obtain everything they imagine as mere mortals. They'd be able to finish this temple, they'd be able to make it great so people came from everywhere and talked about how incredible it was. Their name would be known and they wouldn't have to be scattered. They would get everything they imagined in their small, feeble minds. But it would be so far short of what God intended for them to be. Anytime we stop building the house that God has called us to build and we start building our own, we can get it done. But friends, it's gonna fall far short, far below everything that God ever intended 
for us to have is men. We can invent airplanes. We can build spacecrafts. We can do FaceTime on our cell phones. But as the body of Christ, we can speak in the name of Jesus and demons will be cast out. We can walk upon somebody that's hurting, somebody that's broken, someone that has no hope left. And we can speak life through Christ to them. So we choose. We choose the house that we build. Do we want God's blessing? Do we want God to honor it? Do we want it to be something that's beyond what I can dream or imagine? Or do I want it to be something that I can build with my own two hands? Do I need to get the credit for it? Then I got to build my kingdom. Am I not concerned about who gets the credit? Now I can build his kingdom. Does it have to be something I can explain? Then I must build my kingdom. Am I okay with not being able to explain the miraculous touch of God? Then I can build his kingdom. Tonight, I'm opening up this altar. And anyone that says, I want to build the house that the Lord is building. Maybe you're in this room and you've realized for far too long, you've used every skill you have and you've built everything you can, but your life is not where you thought it would be. Tonight is your night. All you've got to do is quit building your kingdom. Look to our heavenly father and let him know, God, I want to build your kingdom. I don't want things that will last for you. Seen that zigzag up there? You can't even tell what it was or how tall it was or how great it was because it was made by man. But the things that God builds, the work that God is doing will take us beyond this life into eternity. We'll be singing about it. We'll be shouting about it. We'll be dancing about it. We'll be praising about it for all of eternity. So tonight, won't you join me up front and just say unto God, I'm willing to be unified with your body. I'm willing to be unified with your purpose. I'm willing, God, to do whatever you ask of me to do. God, I'm not going to get sidetracked by a lapse of time or how hard it may seem to be. I'm going to build as you have called me to build.